Luke chapter 24, verse 1, But on the first day of the week at early dawn they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but He's risen. Remember how He spoke to you while He was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and and the third day rise again. And they remembered His words, and returned from the tomb, and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, And also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Well, let's get right into it. An important question, perhaps not one that you thought of this morning yourself, but I need to ask it. Is McDonald's, after all, a pagan hamburger joint? I know, it's the pressing question of the day, I understand. Is it rooted deep in Babylonian burgerism? We were driving home last night. I, I was with uh, my son Hayden and his friend Levi coming back home from Seattle. We had spent the weekend there. But we're coming home, and of course, as we're driving, we're hungry. And we saw it there on the left side of the freeway, just above the trees, the golden arches. Golden arches. Apparently, the use of arches goes all the way back in architecture to 4,000 years ago in ancient Babylon. And according to Isaiah 14, verse 4, in the King James translation, Babylon is referred to as the golden city. Golden city, arches, golden arches, you do the math. (laughs) Is McDonald's a pagan entity? Yes. Many of our stomachs would readily agree that it is. (laughs) What are you talking about, Rick? Sometimes we make leaps of logic, and those leaps of logic are not very sound. As in saying, the golden arches and arches from Babylon, well, look, look, there's your evidence. McDonald's must have pagan roots. It's ridiculous. And yet, for many years now, certain pastors, okay, it was me, have panned the word Easter. And have said, this is not a good word. It ties us into Babylonian paganism, the whole idea of the goddess Ishtar. Easter, Ishtar, they sound alike, so they must be from the same root. Well... I gotta come to you with a little confession that some more evidence has come to light, and I'm gonna shift an opinion here. This is an opinion I've held for a long time, so yes, even Pastor Rick can change his mind. Doesn't mean I'm wrong. (laughs) William Tyndale was the first person to come along as a Bible translator, and he translated the Greek word for Passover, Pascha, he translated Easter. And it's still in the King James translation today. Acts chapter 12, verse 4 says, When Herod had apprehended Peter, he put him in prison, delivered him into, to the four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. If you have a King James Bible, you can look that up. Acts chapter 12, verse 4. Using the word Easter, that's because of Tyndale. 
Pendale saw no problem with that. He said, Pascha in the Greek, which is from Pesach in the Hebrew, which means Passover. He said it's it celebrated as the same thing, so it means Easter. And he translated it such. Why did he do that? Well, from another source, Nick Sayers' book, Why We Should Not Pass Over Easter. You can see why I picked that book up. Why We Should Not Pass Over Easter. Sayers writes the following, With the exception of English and German, all other European languages do not have separate words for Easter and Passover, but use a single term derived from the Hebrew word Pesach. Only the context formulates the difference. So if you're speaking Greek, you might refer to Pascha and be talking about the Christian celebration of Easter. Or you could say Pascha and be referring to the Jewish celebration of Passover. It's the same word, it just depends on the context to understand the meaning. But Sayers writes further. Because the English Anglo-Saxon language originally derived from the Germanic, there are many similarities between German and English. Many English writers have referred to the German language as the mother tongue. The English word Easter is of Germanic, Saxon origin, and not Babylonian, as in Ishtar, as Alexander Hislop falsely claimed. I have Hislop's book in my library at home. And Hislop, it turns out, had some kind of faulty research in this area, at least. Sayer says the German equivalent is Oster. O-S-T-E-R, Oster. If you're going to speak it as a correct German, which I am not. I'm just going to tell you right now, as I speak a couple of German words for you, don't expect the because I don't have a sinus problem right now. The German equivalent, Oster. Ostern being, or Ostern being the modern day equivalent, and it is related to Ost, which means the rising of the sun. The German word Ost. Or simply in English, we say East. That's where East comes from. Ulster comes from the old Teutonic form of Alperstehen. <laughs> Thank you. Which means resurrection. And in the older Teutonic form, it comes from two words. Eshter, meaning first, and Stehen, meaning to stand. First to stand. I love that. These two words form to combine Eshterchen, an old German form of Auferstehen, the modern-day German word for resurrection. So, resurrection in the German language, Oster, Ostern, Easter, that's where our word comes from. And literally, if you want to translate Easter going back to the Germanic form, what we're saying when we say Happy Easter is we're saying Happy First to Stand. I like that. I can run with that one. Happy first to stand. Just as the Son is the first to stand, is first to stand in the East, so Jesus, the Son of God, was the first to stand among those resurrected from the dead. The first to stand. What about Lazarus? Well, he fell again. He would die again. All others before Jesus who were resurrected, who died and resurrected, many of them by Jesus' hand himself, would die again. Jesus is the first to stand and stay standing. Jesus Christ, who Paul calls the first fruits of those who are asleep. 1 Corinthians 15.20 He's been raised from the dead. First fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
You know that, by the way, right? You got that down, you understand that, that we all die. That's kind of the deal, right? By a man also came the resurrection of the dead, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And that is universal, by the way. You need to understand that everybody's going to be resurrected. All people will be resurrected. The question is, once resurrected, where are we going to go? And that's the issue that we have to make decisions about in our lives even now. But Paul said, each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at His coming. So whatever you call Resurrection Sunday, if you call it Easter, Ulster, Alperstehen, any of that, the issue here this morning is life. The issue is life. And that Jesus Christ, first to stand from the dead, is alive even as we speak today. And based on His own words, He's here with us. He is among us. We began with the Gospel of Luke at Christmas time, looking at the supernatural nature of the birth of Christ. I love that we've come full circle now on this Easter Sunday to His supernatural resurrection to life, the first to stand. Let's think about it this morning. Just these 12 verses. We'll deal with the rest Wednesday night. Starts out, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. It's interesting the way chapter 24 starts because it begins with a but. Meaning something has changed since the end of chapter 23. Chapter 23 ends that the women came with him that came with him out of Galilee Fall. They saw the tomb, how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. He was dead. Done deal. It's over. But <laughs> on that Sunday morning when they came to the tomb, they found things a little different than they had expected. Do you realize that in the Bible we don't have a single eyewitness account of the actual resurrection? We all talk about it. We all think about it. You know, we all imagine it or can, but but we don't have a single gospel writer who says, here's what happened. You know, no one who, who describes Jesus taking that first breath as He came back alive. We don't know. We can only guesstimate what took place in that tomb that morning We can only surmise. No eyewitness accounts. And we get a hint from Matthew 28. He refers to a great earthquake and the soldiers freaking out. And that's a fun story. But but that's all we get. Peter Walker, in his book, The Weekend That Changed the World, said something I really like. He said, they told it like it was. And by the way, if you've never read the Bible, you need to know that this book is not full of all kinds of weird religious verse. It is a book that tells it like it was. There are sinners in this book. There are murderers in this book. There are drunkards in this book. There are embarrassing things, any kind of stupid human tricks you can think of in this book. And the Bible doesn't shy away from telling the truth of man's inhumanity to man. It doesn't shy away from telling the truth of how foolish we sometimes are, even the best of us, as you'll see in the story today. The Bible just tells it like it is. Walker says they did not use fine artistry papering over all the cracks. Instead, their accounts to this day bear all the marks of surprise as they related with fresh and vivid colors the initially bewildering, almost eerie sequence of events. 
Every human in this story, with the exception of Jesus, as we read it, was surprised. Every one of them. They didn't come to the tomb with expectation of shaking Jesus' hand, giving him a hug and saying, yeah, you pulled it off. They had no idea what they were going to find when they got there. What I'm saying is before this supernatural event, we have eyewitnesses of his death. Absolutely. And after this supernatural event, we have eyewitnesses of his resurrection. We know he resurrected. How? Because people saw him. But we don't have an eyewitness account of the actual event, just the before and the after. And before we get to the after, we got to get to the before. Because you need to understand going into this, Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead. Turn over in your Bibles, one book over to the right, John chapter 19. John chapter 19, down in verse 31. The Apostle John, closest perhaps we think to Jesus of anybody else, he's writing this Gospel, and he said, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. That's what they did. If you're hanging on the cross, they wanted you to die quickly, they broke your legs so that you couldn't stand up on the nail and get breath. And you would just hang and very quickly asphyxiate without the ability to push yourself up. So verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, for he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. Now that may be John writing of himself. John may be saying, I was there, I saw this, I watched them jam the spear into the side of my Lord, I saw the blood and the water came out, I'm telling you right now what happened, I saw it with my own eyes. Or, another possibility is the centurion himself told John, yeah, I rammed that spear pretty deep. Blood and water came out. He was obviously dead, so we didn't break his legs. Either way, John is giving you first-hand testimony of the state of Jesus on the cross before they ever took him down. But there's more here in verse 35, or verse 36. For though these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Psalm 34, 20. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Speaking, by the way, of the Passover lamb. You were not to break the bones of the Passover lamb in that sacrifice. It was a requirement of the Lord. Jesus, when He died, died at precisely the time that inside the city, the Passover lamb was being slaughtered. They didn't break the bone of that Passover lamb, and not a single bone of Jesus was broken as well. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on Him whom they pierced. John says, Blood and water. Spear goes in, blood and water just comes pouring out. Why? It's not usual unless you're already dead. Unless you've died of literally a physically burst heart. And that would cause blood and water to flow out just as it did. John would later write in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. 
John really emphasizes this. What is he emphasizing? John, when he was writing in his day, battled a heresy called Gnosticism. Perhaps you've heard of Gnosticism. The Gnostics were people who believed that because the material realm was so evil, Jesus could never have actually had a real body. And so when He resurrected, it wasn't a resurrection of body. It was not a bodily resurrection. It was not a physical resurrection any more than it was a physical death because God couldn't be physical. He could not put on flesh and dwell among us. And we'll talk about that more when we eventually get to the Gospel of John, which is not too long from now. Because John was constantly saying, no, he wore flesh. He was skin and bones like us. He had a beating heart. He had the internal organs. He lived in the body of a man. Just like you do, just like I do. Some of you ladies, men and women, I'm using the generic man here, so understand me. (laughs) Jesus was not just flimsy spiritual. He was actual. He was tangible. He was physical. And John says he came in water and blood. Water and blood. The two fluids of human life. The two fluids without which our bodies cannot survive, cannot function. And so these two fluids flowed in Jesus just like in every other person. And when He was speared through, these two fluids came pouring out of Him irrefutably revealing Jesus was dead on the cross before they took Him down. Well, verse 37, continuing on there in John 19, 38, let's go there. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, because he was one of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted permission. So he came and he took away the body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, note this, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And in that place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I guarantee you, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus thought Jesus was dead. Because the very manner of laying him in the tomb suggests so. They would take these strips of linen and wrap the whole body, mixing in aloe and myrrh, these spices. A hundred pounds in this case, usually it was more. They didn't have time to do more. But with every strip, they would add some of these spices and mix it all in and and wrap the body. And what would happen over time is, is those strips of linen would start to harden a bit. Almost like a cocoon, really. Would it have had time to do that between the burial and the resurrection? Probably not, but... But that's what happened. And of course, then the women were coming back the next morning to add more spices and more, just to be more, give more of the, of the right burial to Jesus that they felt like he deserved. But it's very interesting to me that you see his own followers looking at him, treating him, dealing with his body as dead, because it was. Now go back to Luke 24 and look at verse 4. It says, while they were perplexed about this. So, before you go any further, the women were perplexed. Perplexed. They were confused. They were thrown off guard a bit. It's the word diaporeo in the Greek, and it means to be thoroughly puzzled. Dia thoroughly, poreo, puzzled. They stood there 
puzzling until their puzzlers were sore. They didn't know what to make of this. It didn't make any sense to them. Now at this point, understand, the last time they saw Jesus' body, He was wrapped with a hundred pounds of burial spices and laid in a stone-cold tomb. He was dead. That's how they saw Him. They looked at Him. They witnessed that He's dead here and left. They did not come back expecting anything other than a dead Jesus. The morning probably started out with Mary Magdalene and perhaps Mary the mother of James the Younger. They seem to have arrived first when you lay out the Gospel accounts together. They didn't all come together as a group of women, but a couple came from here, a couple came from there. And soon Mary and the other Mary were joined by Joanna and Salome. And these faithful women, note this, when they show up at the tomb, they are not carrying baskets full of Easter joys. They're packing burial spices. Because again, His believers, His followers, His disciples knew He was dead. Jesus was dead. One of my favorite theories by those who would say, nah, there's no resurrection, is the theory called the swoon theory. Have you heard it? I love the swoon theory. i got to tell you, this one's creative. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> Jesus was beaten, bloodied, a crown of thorns jammed into his head. He was scourged within an inch of his life. He was nailed, hand and foot, two wooden cross, but he just passed out. Could happen. A soldier came, speared his side. Didn't, by the way, again, didn't club his legs and break them because they looked at him and said, He's dead. Don't need to do that. The other guys were still moaning, still breathing. Jesus was gone. His body was there. His spirit was not. And even the Romans saw that. So they spear his side. Blood and water flowed. But he survived. Swoon theory. Then he was taken down from the cross, tightly wrapped with linen in the Jewish burial manner, with a hundred pounds of spices, and left in the tomb. But he got better. And by the way, the disciples who were in on it, they left him there. Yeah, that's a great way to leave someone who is as good as dead. Put him in a cold tomb. That's what, that's what we recommend in our hospitals these days. <laughs> he got better. And he got up. Sunday morning. And somehow managed, after all of that, to roll a one to two ton stone that was sealed on the outside uphill along a little shaft in front of the door. He managed somehow to roll that up with his fingers from inside the tomb. And once he had accomplished that and walked out of the tomb, he overcame an entire garrison of Roman soldiers because he was good to go. (laughs) The amount of faith that it takes to believe something like that is absolutely ridiculous. It's just stupid. And who comes up with this stuff? But that he resurrected from the dead. Well, how do you know he did? Because people saw him. Because history tells us not one, not two, not the eleven, not the eleven and a handful of women, 500 people saw him at one time. Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 15. And by the way, just a little side note, he wrote it at the time when everybody could have checked it out. That letter circulated in the first century early enough that people could say, 500 people saw him, come on! All they had to do was start tracking down any of those 500. Oh yeah, I saw him. I was there. Yeah, I heard him too. And what did he say? What? They knew. Jesus was dead. That's before. Let's look at the after. Verse 4 again. John, or Luke 24. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Now, we've just gone from a couple or handful of perplexed women to two perplexed angels. They're sitting there on the tomb and they're going, What? What are you here for? (laughs) Matthew tells us why the angels were there. They had been dispatched to roll back the stone from the tomb. Matthew 28, verse 2, A severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. I love that story. Down they go. Well, Rick, Matthew says one angel. I know. They, they, they were all talking from different perspectives. You've got the angel that showed up and rolled the stone. Now you've got another angel that had joined him. The two are there. And after rolling the stone and rendering the guards unconscious, the angels must have wondered why they needed to stick around at all. Gideon, do you know why we're here? Oh, I don't know why we're here, Michael. I, I, just, I was told to wait. What are we waiting for? I don't know. So what do angels do when they wait? I don't know, probably another sermon for another time, but they're just sitting there. And maybe one said to the other, well, maybe we're here for backup. You know, just in case someone shows up or something, we tell them where to go. And when did, yeah, okay. And they're surprised when somebody shows up. Why are the angels perplexed? Why are they surprised? Why do they start questioning the women? <laughs> what are you doing here? First reason. Jesus Christ is the God of the living. He is the God of the living. We need to understand that about His divine nature. They ask the first question out of their mouths, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? See, the angels don't understand that. Why, if you're looking for someone alive, did you come to the graveyard? Why are you here at the tomb? He's the living one. It didn't make sense to them. Turning your Bibles back to Luke 20, just a few chapters left. Luke chapter 20, verse 27. Now we talked about this on a Wednesday night, but I've got to share it with you all because it is perhaps the dumbest thing ever asked of Jesus. Luke chapter 20, verse 27. There came to Him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And we always like to make fun of that. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. But you need to understand, the Sadducees were the erudites. They were the intellectia. They were the ones who, man, they were studied. They were bright. They had all the information. And so they come to Jesus, and you can imagine, here come the Sadducees. And if I was Jesus, I'd be going, okay, this is going to be one of the tough questions. Here they come. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's in the law. Verse 29. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her, and the same way all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. I don't know if they're writing a sad new musical, One Bride for Seven Brothers. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish here. Gang, this is a stupid question. File this one away with questions like, did Noah keep bees in an archive? 
Thank you. By the way, why didn't Noah just kill those two mosquitoes in the first place? Would have been done. Here's a great question for you. If you're born again, does that mean you have two belly buttons? Stupid questions, guys. And had I been standing there when they asked this question, I would have gone... Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Did you guys come up with this yourselves or did you have to go get help? Because that's lame. That is so dumb. Jesus doesn't even break. He compassionately gives an answer. Because you see, Jesus is always looking for opportunities to see someone saved, even if they're stupid. (laughs) Verse 34, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, (laughs) guess what? Soulmates. In the resurrection, ain't no soulmate no more. It doesn't... You're not. (gasps) But I'm married forever! Trust me, you don't want to be married forever. (laughs) Present company excluded, sweetheart. Marriage is for this life. It is not for the next life. Marriage is a great grace that has been given by God. Marriage is a place, I'll tell you what, the best place in my opinion, and I mean this very seriously, it is the best place for spiritual sanctification to happen. Because you've got to work it out with another person. And God blesses us with that. But in the resurrection, I mean, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble. Guess what? Wives, you're going to love your husband's even more in the resurrection. Husbands, you're going to love your wives even more and perhaps even understand them in the resurrection. But guess what? You're going to love everybody else just as much. The intimacy there that we will have with each other, that we will have with the Father, we can't even imagine here. And Jesus is saying, that you need to understand, it's a better situation. Marriage is wonderful, don't get me wrong, but it's better in the resurrection. So that's the first area where you guys are a little off. But then he says, he says they neither marry or are given in marriage, for they cannot die ever anymore. They are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, Jesus going right after the Sadducees, who he knows don't believe in resurrection. He says, but the, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Look it up, Exodus 3, verse 6. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. What is he saying? He's saying God didn't show up at the burning bush and say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham. <laughs> I used to be Isaac's God back in the day. I was Jacob's God a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He said, I am the God of Abraham. What does that mean? Abraham was alive, not dead. His body was dead, but his spirit was very much alive. I am the God of Isaac, who was alive. I am the God of... Jacob, 
400 years earlier, Jacob's body had died, had expired on the earth. But guess what? God comes 400 years later and said to Moses, I'm the God of Jacob. Oh, you are. How's Jake doing? We could have asked the question. Not this Jake, the other Jake. (laughs) You, You could have asked God, how is Jacob doing? Because Jacob was very much alive. Because the Spirit doesn't just die, folks. And God never speaks in the past tense. He speaks in the eternal now. Which means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were yet living and will be resurrected. And so again, back to the angel's question in verse 24. Why seek the living among the dead? Well, let me ask you. Why do we seek the living among the dead? Why do we keep looking to find life in places that are dead? It's like we're all running to the tomb. And we do it every single day. We do all kinds of things to try and prove to ourselves that we're still alive. I still don't understand exercise. (laughs) Big picture. Dieting. Really? Okay, be healthy. I don't have a problem with being healthy. But you've seen them, the gym rats, the diet rats, you've seen those, this is my thing, this is my thing, because I'll be alive, good, you're going to die. <laughs> pleasure. People seek life in pleasure. Man, when I feel good, I feel alive. The problem with pleasure is it always succumbs to sorrow or depression at some point, and you don't really feel so alive. Power, authority. Yeah, man, to boss someone around? There's life in that. No, there's not, because someone else is going to be your boss. Science? We'll find life in science. No, science can't even catch up to the Bible. Medicine. That's what we need. We need medicine to save us. Gang, all the medicine in the world, all of the great discoveries, we're still going to die. And religion. This one we can go after real easily. People going to church to try to find life. People connected to a religious tradition because maybe I can get some life there. I compare it to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. About four and a half years ago, for the first time, I went into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre there in Jerusalem. And I got to tell you, from my perspective, and we took a group a couple, two years ago, we took a group in there. Some of you who were just in Israel with us went in and, and checked it out this time. It is like walking through a tomb. I mean, no offense to anybody, but please hear me on this. It's like walking through a tomb. It's dark. It is covered with somber icons and sorrowful idols throughout the structure. That The air is, is thick and dense with incense. People move about in a long flowing line as though they're in a death march. I kid you not, I looked at their faces. Somber, depressing, weeping over a stone that Constantine's mother said, that's the place, 325 years later. And by the way, there's a lot of question right now even about whether the wall of Jerusalem was inside or outside of the church of the Holy Sepulchre because Jesus was crucified and buried outside the city. And there are scholars today who will say, no, 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 where they have that church is actually on the inside of where the city was in those days. Anyway, people go there. They walk through it. Gang, it just reeks of death. 
And all these people making a, a, a trek to go to the Church of Holy Sepulchre, to walk through there, to kiss the stone where perhaps Jesus died. And I wanted to stand in the midst of that structure and shout out, He's not here! <laughs> he is not here! He has risen! Now we take the group when we go to the garden tomb. Just down the way. It's beautiful in there. It's lovely. There are flowers and trees. And the, and the British have done a great job with it. <laughs> and we can walk through there. And there is a tomb there. And some say, yeah, it's first century. Others say, eh, maybe not. But uh, I kind of see the same thing happen there. Although it's not so dark and dense and heavy. At least people are singing joyful songs throughout the garden. And it is a beautiful place to stop and ponder what Jesus did. But people still go in the tomb there, which cracks me up. Why? I did the first time I was there. I just had to be sure, you know. <laughs> yep, it's not here. I checked. Nope. No Jesus here. People will go in there and come out. What I do love about the garden tomb is they actually put a door, a wooden door on the tomb, which they had to do, I guess, to keep people out at night or whatever. But on the door, there's a hand car sign that just says, He is not here. <laughs> and that's the deal. And yet, people will go to all kinds of things, all kinds of dead places. Oh, they look alive. The flash, the buzz is all there. Woo-hoo, I feel alive when I'm there. But the reality is, it's death. It is not life. Even Bible study can get that way. And if you perhaps, maybe you've come on a Wednesday night, you've been here a lot studying, and after a while you're just kind of like, ah, it's just, it's hard, but man, I'm going to find life there. I'm going to get it. And Jesus says in John 5.39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. And you're unwilling to come to Me so that you may, not, so that you may have life. So you're saying we shouldn't study the Bible? No, I'm saying that the Word should endear us to Him. That the Word should draw us to Jesus. That the Word of God, the Bible, reveals it's only life-giving as, it, as much as it's revealing to us the God of the living who is Jesus Christ. About whom Jesus wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Easter is all about, Charlie Brown. It is about life. Life. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And by the way, the way the thief does that is by dangling things in front of us that look like life. And we grab them and find out there's death attached. And Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the angels are perplexed at the perplexity of the women. They're looking at him and going, okay, why would you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He is alive. He is the God of the living. Second thing that the angels point out here is he's also the God of revelation. The God of revelation. Chapter 6. Someone's car just came alive. He is not here, but He is risen. Remember how He spoke to you while He was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of simple men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And by the way, they didn't say that as a question. They said it as a statement. Remember what He said to you. He's the God of revelation. What did He say? Back in the Galilee, we can, we can look it up. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. 
A little later, Jesus said in verse 44 of Luke chapter 9, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The angels are surprised by the ladies because Jesus told them how it was all going to go down. And the angels had heard it. They're like, don't you remember when... I mean, because He said this was going to happen, right? And there's an absolute must to understanding what they say in verse 7. They said, don't you remember how He spoke to you? Saying that the Son of Man must, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And the third day rise again. Please understand... You cannot have the arrest and the beatings and the betrayal and all that took place and the crucifixion. You cannot have that without the resurrection. Because the resurrection is as much a must as the crucifixion was a must. I must be crucified. I must be handed over. It must happen, Jesus said. But Jesus also said, and I must rise again. Because if He didn't rise again we would not have any reason to celebrate life today. We might be able to look back at a dusty old prophet and say, caught some good stuff. Thanks for giving us a movement, Jesus. And by the way, church was born this morning. Thanks for that. (laughs) If He didn't rise again. But He did. It was an absolute must. Why? Crucifixion paid the entrance fee into heaven. Resurrection opened the door. One paid the price. The other one opens the gates and says, Come on in. I was going to read 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to skip that right now, but read it yourselves. 1 Corinthians 15 is a beautiful, it's an awesome description, explanation of the resurrection as Paul describes it. So take some time today. 1 Corinthians 15, go there, read it, live it, love it. It's the best. What do we do with all of this? How do we deal with all these things this morning? You know, it wasn't the empty tomb. And it wasn't the dazzling angels, or even what the angels said that stirred the hearts of the women. Verse 8 tells us, and they remembered his words. They remembered his words. It was the words of Jesus. That's what got their blood pumping that morning. And for the first time on Resurrection Sunday, for the first time on that morning, I guarantee you a spark of hope exploded in their eyes. They remembered what He said. He said He was going to rise. He foretold this. It's exactly what He said. And Matthew 28 verse 8 says, They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran like Forrest Gump. They were running. (laughs) They took off. And understand, if you're feeling dead, or if you're feeling hopeless inside, or if you're trying to cling to some dumb, dead thing, the first thing to do is remember His Word. You remember the words of Jesus, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Romans 10.17 That's where you're going to find life, in the words of Jesus. What did He say? What has He said to you? What does His Word proclaim? Let His words, as He said, sink into your ears. Hannah and I were talking about a friend of hers who's who's really struggling right now with believing it all. In fact, we've talked about a couple of them over this weekend. 
And with the young man, it's, and I hear this all the time, and I hope this isn't a place that you are, but I hear this all the time. Yeah, you know, I'm really struggling with all, all my belief in God, so I'm going to kind of put that on hold for now. If you're struggling with faith in Jesus, dig in, man. Let His Word sink in. It's like the one time when people close the Bible and set it on the shelf. Well, I'm just not sure what I believe. Dude, don't put it off then. You are at a crisis in your life that is more important than any other place you've ever been if you're not sure who Jesus is. Don't set that aside. It's foolishness. That's like saying, I have just been diagnosed head to toe with bone cancer. I hear there's a, there's a cure for it, but I'm not sure I buy it. What would you do? Your friends are telling you, hey, listen, this doctor in Seattle, right here, and by the way, he's doing it all for free. Go see him. I'll, I'll, you know, I'm struggling with him with this whole thing right now. I'll, I'll, what? You go. You remember his word. Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, and I guarantee you, all that we're doing combined in the flesh is worth nothing. But the words Jesus said, I have spoken to you, are spirit and our life. Second thing to do with the resurrection. Remember His word and then report what you've heard. Verse 9, returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna Shook and Mary the, I mean Joanna, sorry, and Mary the mother of James. And all the other women were with them, were telling these things to the apostles. Report what you've heard. You see, that's why they call it good news. Because it's something you want to tell. It's something you want to be a witness to. It's something you want to share. The Bible says, Isaiah 52, verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him, or in this case her, who brings good news. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. And I can tell you, that Sunday morning, those women had some pretty cute feet. Beautiful feet because they ran proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Now you might say, I, I, I know I'm supposed to talk about this, but what if people think I'm nuts? Let me explain to you, there is no what if. Of course they're going to think you're nuts. I would think you're nuts if I didn't know the story, if I didn't have the faith. I would, what? <laughs> A resurrection? Come on! They will think you're crazy. And this book that tells it like it is says that's exactly what the apostles thought. Verse 11, these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. And I don't think that's because all the women were talking all at the same time. That can freak a man out. But it was nonsense. Old Doc Luke is giving us another medical term here, gang. The term for nonsense in the Greek is leros. And leros is used to describe someone who is babbling with a fever or insanity. You women are touched in the head. Is it hot outside? Were you out in the sun too long? What are you talking about? It's nonsense. It makes no sense. I love the Bible telling us that. The Bible doesn't say Peter stood up among the rest and said... Thine holy word has come to pass just as thou hast said it would. And we now will make way to meet Jesus in the Galilee where he... No! Jesus is like, duh? What? No! And Peter was like that. And the rest of the apostles, no way! No way! Nonsense! The Bible tells it like it was. 
No sugar-coated peeps here. And there are those who still believe the resurrection is nonsense, gang. And honestly, until you're willing to hear the words of Jesus, it will seem like nonsense. But i got to warn you, there's power in the words. There's power in the words of Christ. Uh, another friend of Hannah's, actually a friend of Josiah's, he's over in Wisconsin right now, where after they get married on the 7th, he's going to take her away from me to live. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? What's wrong with that boy, Wisconsin cheesehead? Anyway, so he's living there, and he has a, he has a friend at work who he's trying to talk into, or this last week has been trying to talk into coming with him to Easter service. And I love what his friend said. He didn't want to go because he was afraid one of those Christian songs might get stuck in his head. (laughs) You know what? That's the least of his concern. Because the Word starts to go in. And the Word... Dang, you need to know the Word. Why? Because as you speak God's Word to other people, it does not come back to Him empty. His Word succeeds, the Bible says, in the manner for which He sent it. His Word is powerful. And I'll tell you what, if you don't want your life to be changed, if you come to the bridge, you better plug your ears every Sunday because you're going to get the Word in it's going to start messing with you. Because the Word is power. It is power. But for all the supposed babbling of believers, the alleged nonsense of Christian talk... It may seem like nonsense. You say it anyway. Yesterday I'm down in Seattle. I'm walking through the streets and there was a group of people standing on a street corner. Big sign. He has risen. And they're passing out tracts of the Gospel of John. I took one. Because I'm like, cool. <laughs> and I, as I was walking away, I could hear them talking. They're not even from America. So we had some missionaries who were sent to Seattle this last weekend to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people looked at them like they were nuts. They were so happy. What else do we do? Here's what I'll tell you you need to do. Every one of us need to do verse 12. Verse 12. Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Do it. Run to the tomb. Just run to the tomb. Remember what he said. Remember His words, right? Report what you've heard. But if you're struggling with any of this, run to the tomb. Peter saw, he gets to the, to the tomb, and it says he saw the linen wrappings only. He looks in. There are the linen wrappings. Now there's some discrepancy about what those linen wrappings look like. We know from John that the, the face wrapping was folded up like a napkin and set off to the side. What about the rest? If we read it here in Luke, he saw the linen wrappings only. That word only uh, means by themselves. So there seems to have been also folded up and set aside. However, some have asked, could it have looked like a body-shaped cocoon with no body? Because if those burial spices had begun to take effect like 100 pounds of glue, it's possible that those linen wrappings were kind of just laid out in the body shape, but there ain't no one inside. Because when Jesus resurrected, well, you don't need a burial shroud when you've resurrected from the dead. But Peter looks in. Luke says he saw. He saw with his eyes. The word is blepo in the Greek. It just means to use your eyes. It's not a Mark's brother. It means just to look. He looked. John gives us another word to describe what happened to Peter next. John 20, verse 6. Peter saw the linen wrappings lying there. The word saw is different now. It's Thereo, it's where we get our word theory. Peter's thinking. Peter's starting to work it out. 
Peter is now pondering, even as he looks in and he sees the tomb without Jesus, the linen wrappings, however they were, you know, whether they were in a cocoon shape or they hadn't dried and so they, you know, were just folded up, it doesn't really matter. What Peter saw made him start to think and ponder. And 50 days later, Peter would be one who declared in Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Because Peter will see Jesus that evening. But right then, something's going on. Something has happened to Peter. Run to the tomb. Run to the tomb. Keep going to the tomb. Keep looking for Jesus because you're not going to find Him there. You're going to find Him in the place of life. But finally, finally, just rejoice in wonder. The story ends, and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. Peter's marveling. What does that mean? Ekthumadzo in the Greek, it means a state of wonder specifically over a miraculous or supernatural event. He's marveling that something supernatural had happened. Do you understand? I think Peter got it. I think right then and there, Peter knew Jesus resurrected. He's theorizing, but it's in his head. He's understanding. He's getting it. Peter knew. And I said, well, if Peter knew, why didn't he go back and declare faith right then and there? Why didn't he tell the other apostles? Look, cut Peter some slack. He still needed a little time to wrap his arms around it. Because the last time Peter saw Jesus, he got an eye-to-eye with the Lord immediately following his third denial. How would you feel? Ever get up on a Sunday morning and think, I'm going to go to church today, and you think, no, what I did last night, I can't go to church today. I'm too ashamed. I I can't look Jesus in the eye. Because the last time I looked Jesus in the eye, I was betraying Him. I think Peter absolutely knew, but he was wrestling with this guilt, with this shame. I think Jesus shows amazing grace not showing up at the tomb right there. And sometimes that's what the heart needs. Brothers and sisters, those of you believers in Jesus, you want so badly someone you know to to choose Jesus now, today, this minute. Hey, keep telling them about Jesus. Sometimes the heart needs a little time to catch up to the head. They may know. They may even have a sense that I know this is true, but I just I can't get over my shame. And Jesus gave Peter all afternoon to marvel before showing up. And listen, marveling is good medicine. Worship is one of the best things you can do when you're feeling shamed, when you're embarrassed, when you're sorrowful over decisions you've made, the best thing you can do. I don't want to worship when I'm like that. I know, but it will heal you. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Jeremiah 17, 14. Now sometimes we need that. We need a little heart healing before salvation can come rushing in. Story ain't over yet, and we'll finish it on Wednesday, but I want to end with a question for you this morning. And the question is very simply, do you want to live? Do you want to live? Maybe you're having trouble standing right now, or you're struggling with sin in your life, with doubt, with angst, with depression, with difficulty. Some of you, you need to remember His words. Others, you need to report what you've heard. Still others need to run to the tomb. 
But everyone, and I mean every one of us, are invited this morning to marvel at Jesus. To rejoice in the Lord. Jesus was the first to stand. Like the sun rising in the east, He was the first to stand from among the dead. And Jude 24 says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.